Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, which means it's Halloween! We'll be taking our Wayback Machine back to the late 20th century East Village and Lower East Side for this episode, a time and place some of you may know and remember, and others won't know and maybe won't care. That's okay. We all have songs that remind us of where where we were at that place on that night with that person, and that crazy, wonderful thing happened. And this song just happens to be one of them. For me. back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Oh Bondage Up Yours by the late, great polystyrene and X-ray specs from their germ-free adolescence album in 1978. And let's keep going with this song, chosen by this week's guest artist to open their episode.
we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Brooklyn brand, band Grizzly Bear with four cypresses from their 2017 album Painted Ruins. And I googled them because I really liked this song and I wanted to know more about them. And I found out that one of the band members' last name is actually Bear. That's crazy. I wonder which one of them is named Grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're getting all freaky deaky because it's Halloween. But anyway, now, guess what, kids? It's time for my favorite part of the show. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Hogwarts, Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Oh, this is, you know, you're the first guest that's done the woohoo with me! Oh my goodness, I can't oh. believe it. Okay, so, um, yeah, this is my favorite part of the show, and I am sitting here with one of my favorite humans, and yes, every week I say that the person that's with <laughs> me is my favorite, but in this case, it's actually more true than true because (laughs) I know this woman since the 20th century going back to the art star yes we're going back to the art star surf reality collective unconscious alternative comedy performance lower east side scene with writer designer and fellow cat human Marie Mundaka hello everybody hello hola and fellow New Yorker too native New Yorker yeah so we, we 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 could we could talk about all kinds of coffee and windows and stuff and, and when we bought and, and when we bought and things like <laughs> I I could have taken the D train I could have taken that too yeah. <laughs> but I didn't yeah so welcome <laughs> thanks for having me oh my God it's been I haven't seen you in so long I feel okay so um, Marie and I we've worked together on different projects over the years. Um, she was one of the first people to review what um, my performances and, and my writing because she's worked for many publications, which we will get into in, in a little bit. And, you know, sometimes you just need to find an excuse to hang out. So here we are. Yay! Yay. Beautiful downtown Burbank. Bur- beautiful downtown <laughs> Burbank, looking at the water. Yes. Ah. And all the hot, hunky surfers. All the hot, hunky surfers. Oh, yeah. I, I don't even know... If- Burbank is on the water. No, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so, you, as you can see, us New Yorkers are us New York girls are geographically challenged. So, Marie, how did we meet? I know that it was back in the 20th century. I'm going to guess it was the mid to late 90s. And yes, yes uh, but I don't remember if it was at if it was at the open mic at Face Boys open mic if it was at Rev Jen's Anti Slam. But you had said in the in the pre-show because we do a little pre-show that you had a story. So I'm really interested to hear what that is. Some people think that we met either at Face Boys or Rev Jen's. Some people. Some people. Would that would be me. The some people, or would that would be just other people. <laughs> Probably other oh, okay. People too. Okay. But we actually met at a um, dance revolution. Thing. Oh, the Dance Liberation Front? Liberation Front. Uh, you guys were having a little demo in Washington Square Park. And you and Bex Schwartz were uh, frugging with um, Norman Siegel, 
Really? Attorney, activist, I know. Yes, I, 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 I actually have photographs. And, and I was not um, looking like Michelle. I think no. I was my alter ego. You were your alter ego. Carmen Mofongo, oh, the Lower East Side's one and only Latin lady with stuff on her head. I have a photograph of me dancing with Norman Siegel in Times Square. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you guys were buds back then. Yeah, well, he went to a lot of DLF events. He did. Okay, yeah. so for people who don't know what we're talking about, the DLF, or Dance Liberation Front, was a kind of activist performance group thing that was founded by the people from Surf Reality and Collective Unconscious, Robert Pritchard, Faceboy, and Reverend Jen. And this was in opposition and direct response to the archaic cabaret laws from the Giuliani mayor um, administration. So we're talking Giuliani was the mayor of New York. This is like the 90s people. And with these laws, correct me if I'm wrong, Marie, but it was be, you couldn't dance in a bar. That was illegal, correct? That's correct. The cabaret laws are actually from the early 20th century yes. and had not been enforced since the 50s. When Giuliani came into office in the 90s, he decided it was it was like Footloose all of a sudden. No more dancing. That's right. Foot, and Footloose, people are still thinking about Footloose because it only come out like about eight or nine years before. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of weird. We, You and I grew up in an era where you could go to a club, a bar even, and dance, and all of a sudden we were not allowed. People were getting ticketed for rhythmically moving their asses. Yes, rhythmically moving. I remember yes. that. <laughs> and those cabaret laws also had their roots in, in total racism yes. because they basically were targeting the many jazz and blues clubs that were up in Harlem. Exactly. And God forbid the fancy little white girls should dance with a black man or a brown man. They might have brown babies. They and might get ideas. Yeah, they might get ideas. Well, you know what dancing leads to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun. Fun. <laughs> fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yes, so the DLF, um, we protested against this, this law, and we would do these dance-a-thons or dance events in many different places. Wow, so Washington Square Park, huh? Yeah, I was uh, there with Peter Bernard. We were filming for Rules Like Ozzy, and um, he was friends with Bex Schwartz and also with Reverend Jen, so uh, I think it was Bex who told us, hey, come down to this thing and film. There's going to be a lot of fun people down there. They'll get some good interviews. So we did. Wow. So tell us, Rules Like Ozzy, tell us about that. Rules Like Ozzy was a public access TV show, which is what we used to do back in the old days before the YouTubes. We would uh, actually put on... In, 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 in the early years of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. We would put on television shows, basically. Okay. The Manhattan Neighborhood Network, it was on, um, I don't remember if it was Channel 16 or Channel 17. No, it was like 20 years ago. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I care. You know what I mean? I don't mean I don't care, but you know what I mean? But Who it was, remembers? It wasn't Who remembers? on Channel 35, which was the Robin Bird That was channel. right. Oh, my God. How funny. So, okay, so rules like Ozzy. Yeah, so, um, you know, I lived in Manhattan since I was a teenager, and... I basically have wanted to do a public access show since I started seeing things like TV Party and, of course, the Uncle Floyd show, which Uncle wasn't Floyd. public access, but it was a low-budget television it show. It was about as public access as an actual television show could be because yes. it was on UHF as opposed to VHF. Right. Ooh, explain that, Marie. <laughs> I don't know if I can explain it, but it was, you know, these were... The higher pre number channels. Pre-cable TV channels yeah. that were higher numbers, super local specialized TV channels, 
Channel 68, where Uncle Floyd was, came out of northern New Jersey, and you could only get it in parts of Manhattan, the Bronx, and New Jersey. I don't even know if you could get it in Brooklyn unless maybe you had a really big antenna. So I wanted to do a show like that, and uh, my friend Peter also was very interested in doing public access, so he came up with the idea of doing a TV show. And Rules Agassi was a basically a magazine style show about anything that we thought ruled like Ozzy rules. Like mm. if you rule like Ozzy, you are awesome. Yeah, so if you were if you were doing something we thought was awesome, we wanted to have you on the show. And sometimes that was people who were maybe a little bit famous and sometimes like I think we had Mud Honey on once. Oh, cool. That was I think the most famous we got. Oh, war we had some warped tour people on, so they were a little famous. Uh, actually I said Mud Honey was the most famous people we had on, but it's not true. It was the Upright Citizens Brigade. Oh, wow. And they came, they went to the open mic. So they went to Face Boys open mic. When they first came to New York, they made a concerted effort to bring the different communities together and sort of yes. infiltrate and befriend. And it was so much fun. Uh, Amy Poehler used to call, well, there was a Rules Like Ozzy hotline number because all the best public access TV shows had a hotline number, which was just a voicemail. <laughs> and, you know, we'd leave a goofy message or a song and people would leave goofy messages. So Amy Poehler used to call us rapping Wu-Tang Clan lyrics. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> oh my God, do you still have any of those? I think it's all lost, unfortunately. Oh, too bad. It would be great to like start put, putting all that stuff on YouTube or something. I know, it would be great. Yeah. Or, I mean, this is, we're, we're talking here like the mid to late 1990s where right, it was- Right, probably was, 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they were still the last vestiges of what people considered the heyday of the East Village and, and the Lower East Side. And there were many publications, outprint publications, that covered the scene, one of them being the East Village Eye. Right. And the other one um, you wrote for, which um, whose name escapes me right waste. now. The yeah, The Waste, that's right, the New York Waste. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Um, the Waste was a punk rock publication. It was kind of like a more artsy version of The Shadow. The Shadow was the anarchist publication. and. Um, but the waste was just cartoons, comics, and music, basically, very little else. But it was on a regular schedule. So I don't know where the money came from, but they had like a two or three color cover every month, and it was on newsprint, and it was oversized, and multiple pages. And um, I used to write a entertainment column just about fun stuff I did that month. And other people we knew also drew comics. I had a lot of talented uh, comics artists and cartoonists no, back then. There's a lot of, yeah, it's, it's always a lot of talent around. There's all, I mean, I think that in the era that I'm gonna say that we came up in as, as artists and, and performers, we were just surrounded by talent, like inundated by yeah. talent, like overflowing talent, like talent up the wazoo. Seriously. And we really came came up with some really interesting people and, and did a, a ton of interesting stuff. But where did it all start with you, Marie? I mean, uh, you are from Staten Island originally, right? Staten Island. Staten Island, Island. Or oh the, my God. The Shaolin, as it's known. The Shaolin. To the the fans of the Wu Tang Clan. And you lived there until you were what in your early late teens, early twenties? I lived there until I was eighteen. Okay. And then I left. As soon and as I graduated high school, I was out. 
One thing that I've always loved about Marie is that like people would say to me that they would think that I was cool and I would be because Marie going to like CBGBs when she was like 14 and 15 then the, she, she would get into clubs that I would get thrown out of because I was not as cool as Marie. I don't know how it, I did it. It's funny because... Um, Do you think it's your Latin lover looks? It might be because there's this new... Because um, she's Chilean, you know. I am. She's <laughs> there's this new um, book coming out about the Mud Club. It's written by the mud, the, one of the doormen from the Mud Club. I actually got in there once. <laughs> and that's the thing. I used to go to the Mud Club all the time, and I never thought anything of it. I'd be like, are, what are you doing tonight? Are we going to the Mud? All right, let's go to the Mud. Go there, walk in. Go to the mud. I love it. And now I find out subsequently, apparently, it was hard to get into. And I'm like, really? Maybe the fact that when I was like 18 or 19 or 17 or whatever, I looked like I was like 8, 9 or 10. That's the thing. That I could have hurt. much older. Yeah, no. I all the clubs you went to so I could like bask in your excellence so well, I could live vicariously through you. First it was CB's and Max's. Yeah. You went to Max's Kansas City? I used to go to Max's oh, all the Jesus. time. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Tell, tell, spill. Who'd you bang in the bathroom? Nobody. Ah. Nobody. <laughs> the place was disgusting. <laughs> I did have sex in the bathroom at CB's. Oh, that, and that wasn't disgusting. It was much worse than Max's. I just did it because it was a thing. Mm. It's like everyone had to do it. It was the rite of passage. So wait, so Max's closed in what year? I'm not sure. You 78? Must, oh, Jesus. You must, uh, you, you were seven. I was, I was seven years old. So, wow. So, like, so did you see, like, the dolls? Who did you, did you see anybody? I mean, did you, like, just go there to hang out? Like, what bands? I already did didn't like the dolls by that point. Okay. Now, first of all, Dave Johansson's from Staten Island, so yes. that's like negative cool points right, as right, far right. as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Buster. Yeah, but um, I did not see The Damned. I wanted to see The Damned, but it was too crowded to get in. Saw The Dead Boys a bunch of times. Oh, The Dead Boys. Saw The Dead Boys. Cheetah. Saw Cheetah's. Cheetah's still alive. Saw Cheetah's And his hair is still red. <laughs> I saw a picture of him. Good for Cheetah. I good for him. So I used to go to Max's. I never saw famous people hanging out there, but I was always kind of oblivious, and I was also drunk. Yeah. So, <laughs> No, but I don't that, know what's but, that's a, but that's a native New Yorker thing to be oblivious. Right. Like I, I pass by people all the time uh, that other people have told me, did you see this? Did you see this? I'm I like, no, like, no, whatever. No. What, do you know one time I literally bumped into Andy Warhol? Literally, <laughs> literally. I, I was, almost did several times I, in, the, in the farmer's market. I, oh, no, and Richard Hell came in and spoke to my class and fell asleep in the chair. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that at SVA? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he was really good friends with, with the English uh, instructor, who I wish I remember her name. She was like the best teacher I've ever had. There. That makes sense that he'd be friends with her, because of course he's a poet. Yes, so. yes, he's a literary dude. He is. Yes, as well, as well as a nihilist and a solipsist. Literary genius. Yes. So tell us about some more exploits from your well-spent youth. Well, I remember one time my friend went to Max's and he came back super excited and he said, I just sat at a table with Robert Fripp, and I was like... King Crimson! Yes. Oh, my like, God! Holy fucking shit. You sat at a table with Robert Fripp, and he was like... And he was super weird, and he kept doing Monty Python skits. And I was like, 
what the hell? Robert Fripp was doing Monty yes, Python and I was like, This is like the confluence of all my interests right here. Max's Kansas City, Prague Rock, and Monty Python. Oh my God! <laughs> and I, but I wasn't there that night. So Two was, girls that like King Crimson. Yeah. Check this out. Some girls do like the Prague Rock That's a little right. bit. Yeah, it's all right. I love King Crimson though. Yeah, they yeah, were great. Yeah, they were great. So I missed that. But uh, at CB's, I saw Blondie. Blondie did like a residency of seven nights. Every night was sold out. It was bananas. Oh, geez. What year was this? Uh, it was when Plastic Letters came out. So I'm not sure what year that was. Were there 79? No, it couldn't have been because I was with Jim. Uh, <laughs> John Muse? John Muse? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would have believed it if you would have said yes. That would have been cool. But no, it was uh, someone much uh, slimier. Uh-uh. <laughs> was it the one that wore cleats? Yes. Ah! Oh, my God. So, um, <laughs> so say that story. It say was 78. Okay. Yeah, so I was 15. I just turned, I was auditioning to be in a band. at this guy, um, Jim, lived in his mother's basement, literally. And he had recently inherited $2,000. So with that money, he bought a van that didn't work. He bought, he spent 800 on a van and 1200 on pot. And the pot was terrible. $1,200 on weed? Yeah, that he had planned to sell, but it was homegrown in a time when homegrown meant shit. Right, so not like today. You couldn't get high off it. It was terrible, terrible pot. And so he had this van that barely ran and pot he couldn't sell. Oh my God! So he's so he's a real winner. He was a real winner, but I was like, "Hey, he seems to be into me, and I want to go out with a guy who can buy me beer." Oh, one time he met me at the bus stop, and he was wearing a denim jumpsuit. What? Oh, and I was like, and you know, and I'm there with like my heavy, heavy black eyeliner and my super red lips. I'm wearing like my black peg-like jeans and. He's in a denim jumpsuit, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. It was January. We'd Somehow we'd managed to continue dating. This was the end of our relationship, though, at this point. We had continued dating from, like, August through the holidays. He was also a compulsive shoplifter, so... Uh, <laughs> He shoplifted a lot of things for me for Christmas, oh. which was very kind Loves of Loves Baby Soft? Yes, he loves Baby <laughs> Soft. Um, so we're going to CB's. It's snowing, um, and it had been, it was a very cold winter already, and it was, the streets were icy. At this point, I believed him to be 28 years old, and I was 15. Oh. However, he was not 28, he was 32. Oh, I don't know why he thought taking four years off his age would have made a difference, <laughs> but he told me he was 28 when he was 32. That's illegal. Yes, it, whether he was 28 or 32, yes. it's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. I show up at the ferry terminal and he is wearing his winter boots, which, you know, bad enough, he's not wearing Chuck Taylors, and right. he has cleats on them. I don't what? notice the cleats until he gets up and we're walking, the ferry comes, the door opens, we're walking towards the door, and it's like, I hear this, this click, 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 and I'm like, what the hell is on your feet? And he's like, I got cleats, it's icy out. I don't want to slip, and I'm like, so uncool. Oh my God. And I don't know if we were going to see the shirts that night or if it was one of the nights where we went to one of the only nights when CBGB's theater was open. CBGB's theater was a very short-lived experiment. 
uh, at late 77, early 78. It was like right around Christmas to right after New Year's. And after that, it was closed. I think it was at the old location of the Fillmore East. Um, so it's this theater, basically. And there are seats and everything, giant stage. And they had um, the night that I went, they had talking heads. I went to see Tough Darts and Milk and Cookies. That's all I wanted to see, but Talking Heads was the big band. Oh. Um, on another night, Patti Smith played. Wow. I didn't see that one, but um, they were shut down by the fire department. And so he's wearing cleats, and I was horribly embarrassed, and I left without him that night. Ah, good for you. Just, Making your choices at the age of 15. It's, 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 it's important for young ladies to know what they will and will not stand for. An inappropriate, doofy dress yeah. cannot, cannot be. Yeah. No, 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 no. So here's a, here's a question. How do you think... All of these myriad experiences of your well-spent youth influenced you in your writing later on. Well, I write a lot about that time because it, it seems like it was the last time in our culture when teenagers were allowed to sort of run rampant and do what they wanted to do. It's, you didn't see that past 1980. It was over. Basically, it was Eaton Pates. It was when Eaton Pates got kidnapped. Oh my God, Eaton Pates, for people who might not know, because we do have listeners that are not from the they United States. They weren't even born then. Yeah, right, but we, <laughs> we also have listeners that are not from the U.S. Eaton Pates was, um, he is the reason why they put missing children on milk cartons. He was a young boy, six years old, who was living in Soho. His parents were artists, and this was like when Soho was really Soho, not a shopping mall. Actual artists lived there. And on the day that he's allowed to walk to the bus stop, on the friggin' corner, so like 50 feet, he disappears and is never to be seen again. It was so horrible. Yeah, it was really horrible. And, and today, they're still trying to figure out who killed him. Right, they still... No body. Never, never found a body. Never found, I mean, the, this was a time when... Um, that, that poor family, that poor used, child. Yeah, it was horrible. Gay men used to cruise the piers. Yes. The dilapidated peers. The dilapidated the, peers. You, and how many people do you think they took one wrong step, fell through, and were never seen again? Probably a lot. Yeah. Especially people were high then. Yeah. People were yeah. high all the time. Yeah. People were high. People were ugly. People were ugly back then. That was a time when people were allowed this to be ugly. This is true. And they were allowed to suck. I'm not talking about sucking appendages. I mean, like, you could be bad at something. Yeah. And it, and it didn't matter. Like, right. you, you could be a bad musician or a bad poet or a bad artist or a bad comedian. And that was almost like a badge of pride to, to, suck, to suck at something. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot more freedom back then. Yeah. And this was kind of like the last time in our culture when we had that freedom. And I think you and I were lucky enough to have been able to experience that. Yes, yes. We, we caught the tail end of that. Yeah. We did. Oh, my God. So how did that influence your writing, though? Well, I write a lot about that time. It's something I look back on with, you know, with wonder and horror that, you know, I was doing these things that were completely inappropriate. When people say, you know, oh, they're teenagers, the teenage brain isn't really formed until it's 21. It's really, really true. I made a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> yeah, well, who didn't, you yeah. know? But we lived. Yeah, we lived. We all made a lot of bad decisions, and we all lived. Sometimes I think that um, when they, people look back on history, they're going to think that people that, that lived through the 70s and 80s, they were, like, or grew up then, came of age in, in those two decades, like, how the hell do we live? Yeah. We should all be dead. We should all we be should, dead. Because no cell phones. 
<laughs> Nobody knew where we were. I know. No, it was just like you left the house at 10 o'clock in the morning and it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Hell no, because Devin CBGB's was a 32 year old guy. Oh my God. I know. We're in cleats. So when we, when we get to the 90s and um, we're all performing at Surf Reality, you were continuing to write criticism and cover um, different events for, for which publications? New York Waste and um, something else. I can't remember. Uh, uh, Extreme TV, yes, which was a website slash public access show um, that my friend did, and all through the eighties, I was doing zines. That was sort of my thing. Oh, speak was a little zine, bit about zine culture zine because zine, zines, zines are like the best. Yeah, I was zine girl back then, so I always wanted to do like fan club newsletters. That was my thing when I was a kid. I like joined every fan club: banana splits, monkeys, everything. And so, you know, you'd get this, you'd send in a dollar or a quarter and a box top and you'd get something back in the mail, like a sticker and always a newsletter saying, you know, oh, did you know Davey likes to have walnuts with his oatmeal in the morning or something stupid, you know? Something mundane. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to do these fan club newsletters. So when the early 80s happened, um, I started doing different fanzines. At that point, though, fanzines, were, it was kind of limited because we didn't have computers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you barely had word processors back yeah. then. Like IBM Selectric. We had, oh, we God. had the Selectric. Oh, and we had the Wang. Oh, my God. I remember the Wang. There was a word processor called the oh Wang. All I could do was process words. I could do nothing else. Right. But it was a word processor that could s- store information. So how did we live through all that? I don't know. Fanzines were super limited back then. I used to write for someone when I was in high school, and people would mimeograph I mean, them. we were lucky we had staplers. I can't believe, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we lived either. Um, so in the 80s, this is when PCs started to happen and graphical user interfaces and suddenly there was this thing called PageMaker, which was the first program where you could actually lay out a page on a computer screen. The precursor to Quark and then InDesign. Yes. Yeah. And in the, fact, like, the, like the cave painting version of it. In fact, little known factoid, InDesign is PageMaker. Really? Um, Adobe bought Aldis, which was the owner of PageMaker, and they basically took the PageMaker interface and upgraded it with some of the stuff that Quark did and made it into InDesign. Well, if you use InDesign at your day job, now you know where it came from. Yeah. So uh, PageMaker existed. I got a bootleg copy of PageMaker, and I started doing fanzines, music fanzines. It was always music. And um, I do stupid ones, like I did one for my my boyfriend's sister's friends about Duran Duran and then I'd do fun ones that I'd give out at clubs and it was just a lot of fun. One thing, one of the things I always admire about you is that you always keep up with new music. I mean most people they end up being stuck in what they listen to before they were 30. But you keep up with music now. Um, Marie's music selections, which you will be hearing, you will have heard already and you'll be hearing after, are like from now. It's not like like I will do stuff from like 80s, 90s, early 2000s, but like you just keep current. And and what do you, you, to, to what do you attribute that? 
boredom. <laughs> <laughs> there is so little that in music that I connect with that I kind of feel like I have to keep up just hoping that there's like more people for me to listen to. Like, I think my, my really my two favorite bands from when I was a teenager were Wire and Buzzcocks. Mm. And there have been a lot of people who have like continued on that Buzzcocks tradition of punk pop, power pop, mm. but I didn't think. Falling in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen, fallen in, in love with. with. But I don't, no one's really done it as well as they have. But Wire, no one's ever really done anything like them since then. So I've sort of been on a search since then for more music that's in that vein of Wire, which is kind of creepy, atmospheric, sometimes goes off into dance territory, sometimes goes off into noise territory. And that brings you eventually to things like, you know, uh, early 2000s TV on the radio yes. and Radiohead, and now you have Grizzly Bear. Yes, I um, like actually. I know Grizzly Bear. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a rockasaurus. I know right. who Grizzly you Bear. You know is. the Grizzly Bear. <laughs> so after we we passed through that whole surf reality collective unconscious thing, which ended in in the early aughts. I, I like to say aughts on the air. Um, I discovered storytelling, and one of the things that I did was I put together a storytelling show called It Came from New York. And I did this in, in 2005, and my idea was, because as a performer, and you know this, as, like, as someone who's an, a fellow native New Yorker, you'd often be in a room with other performers, musicians, writers, whatever, and you'd be the only New York native. Because like everybody else came here from someplace else. Mm -hmm. But so I started this show called it, it Came From New York and you were one of the first people that I had in the original the original little crew because I had I wanted to have someone from the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. And you had so many amazing stories. I mean, one of them, when you said that that boyfriend, we keep going back to him. Is he still alive? Oh my God, I don't is he going to find us? Oh I my God. You, when you said not. When you said that he, oh snap, you, but we probably will anyway. We can make fun of a 32 year old man who was dating a 15 year old, though. That's true. And like 30 years later, he'd be a 65 year old. And I'm not even going there. So. <laughs> Anyway, the, you, you said that he had a van, and I was right. wondering, like, one of the first stories that you told with me on It Came From New York was how you sold a car to go see Gigi Allen. I did. And I don't know <laughs> if that's the story you're going to tell for us now, but um, right now, Marie Mandak is going to tell one of her It Came From New York stories. I'll tell a shorter version of yes. that story. Yes, tell a short version. So... It's the early 90s, and you know, even though I lived through punk, and it seems like the 80s was a wasteland. So for me, when I think back on my fond times of my youth, it's really the early 90s and the grunge era more than anything. And I was living in the East Village, and I had a car because I had previously been living in Jersey City, and you could, you could have a car in Jersey City, and I did have one. But then I moved to the East Village, the car stayed on Staten Island. Um, I had because I was impulsive and impetuous, I decided on a whim to quit my job. I had no money, but I did have money in a 401k. So I cashed out my 401k and I was like, I'm just gonna live on this and hang out every fucking night until this money runs out. And I'll live frugally and I'll eat, you know, I'll eat scrambled eggs and then peppers every day like I did when I was a kid and it's gonna be great. And it was great because 
Monday night was my night off, but Tuesday I'd be commuting at Limelight, and Wednesday there was something, and Thursday where there was something, and uh, Friday was Stigmata at the Pyramid, and Saturday was Ward 6 at the bank, and like there was something to do every night at the Batcave. There was something to do every night of the week. It was great, and I'd had time to see all my friends' bands, and I didn't feel bad about going because I could get up the next day any fucking time I wanted to. And I would get up at 10, and I'd walk to the gym, and I'd take a class, and I'd walk home, and I'd watch, I'd dream of fucking genie for a couple of hours, and it was glorious. But then the money started to run out. I, I, I coasted on the money for quite a long time, but the money started to run out, and I was like, ugh, I really don't want to go back to work. It was like, the summer wasn't over yet. I was like, can I possibly stretch this out? anyway and I'm like looking at all my finances I'm like my clothes are ratty I can't sell them I don't want to sell my records because I love my music and back then what could you do with your records you could put them on a cassette tape you couldn't burn them to your computer so I didn't know what to do and then I remembered oh shit I've got this car at my parents house that I could sell and I was like nah nah I'm not at that point yet but um, my friend Andy called me up and he's like oh hey Marie Gigi's playing and I'm like Oh, Gigi's playing, and he says to me, yeah, but it's $10. <laughs> and I'm like, $10? $10 was a lot for a show back then. It was like, you know, $7 was like the max you would pay for a show on that level. I mean, we're talking a Gigi Allen here. We're not talking Billy Joel. <laughs> so... Um, it was $10, and I was like, oh, I can't afford $10, and Andy's like, uh, you got to get the money, Marie, you just got, Andy wasn't even going to, like, pony up the money for me, he was just like, you got to get the money, so I was like, oh, we'll see what happens, okay, um, so Gigi Allen, he was this sort of East Village ghost spirit. He was the spirit of the East Village. He was the monster of the East Village. He was this horrible creature <laughs> who like took the punk ethos and like did, he did everything you th that your parents thought were happening at punk shows and he actually did them. He would cut his forehead and bleed like he was in WWE wrestling. He would literally shit on the stage. He would urinate in people's mouths. He was often completely naked, except for his motorcycle boots for some reason. Um, at various points, he would have a beard and a mustache and long hair, and sometimes everything would be shaved. He had ugly ass tattoos that clearly looked like they came from prison. It was horrible. So, um, and his music was quite shitty. It was all very terrible. <laughs> They, they could all play their instruments, but the songs were really nothing. They were stupid, stupid songs about shit and titty fucking and like really dumb stuff, complete juvenilia. And, uh, but, you know, it's Gigi Allen, and you sort of feel like, well, you have to go see this because how can you call yourself a punk if you haven't seen Gigi? So Andy's like, you got to go. You got to get the money, Marie, because we got to see Gigi. And I'm like, okay, so I'm like, I got the car. I'll sell the car. So I, uh, I say to my dad, Dad, I'm selling the car, okay? And um, I'm going to put out an ad in the Staten Island Advance. But, you know, I don't live on Staten Island, so you guys are going to have to take care of it. And my father says to me, 
and I'm gonna say something super racist here that my father said. He said, fine, but don't sell it to any Chinese women. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, I'm selling it to whoever I want to. Whoever wants to give me money for this car is getting the car. My father, my father is, he's kind of, he drives like a taxi driver. And he's not a native New Yorker. He was born in Chile. I don't know where he got this crazy taxi driving ability, but like he's very um, he's very attuned to the road and like he sees he sees his possibilities of where he can go like ten cars in advance and for whatever reason, whenever we're driving in Chinatown, some lady cuts him off. <laughs> and he's always like, Chinese drivers! Oh, not not just Chinese drivers, Chinese ladies. They can't drive. I mean, we, we all know the ladies can't drive to begin with. He's Chilean. This is acceptable from them. So he says, all right, you could, anyone but a Chinese lady. So of course, the first person that shows up is this lovely Asian gentleman who's buying the car for his wife. And I, of course, I let them buy the car. So uh, I get my however many, it's thousands of dollars I get. This is gonna keep me going for another couple of months, which was great. And uh, I buy my ticket to the Gigi Allen show and Andy and I go down to the bank that night and there's a sign on the door that says, Gigi is sick. <laughs> we will refund all tickets. I'm like, fuck. So um, I somehow get, you know, a couple of weeks later, I do get the money back. A couple of weeks later, I get wind of this show going on at Beowulf, which was a club on Avenue A. Gigi's playing at Beowulf. Um, they must have posted flyers or something, because it certainly wouldn't have been in the voice. So um, it was $7. It was super cheap. So I was like, oh, great, I'm going. They weren't selling advance tickets. So I was like, I'm going. Andy couldn't go because it was a weeknight. Wamp. Um, so I went all by myself, a little waif, <laughs> a little 28-year-old waif, uh, going to Beowulf and, you know, I wore my grunge clothes, my sh cut-off shorts and my flannel and um, I go up to the front because I'm like, I'm paying for this so I have to see this. And um, I go up to the front of the stage and there's a lot of people at the front of the stage at the, before the show begins. And then the band comes out and they start playing before Gigi comes out and then Gigi comes out and immediately the pants come off. He comes out in clothes but the pants come off immediately and a guy goes up to him and begins to fillet him. It was horrible. He was, he was not turgid in any way and nor was he turgid when the guy stopped. The guy just like sucked on it for a little while and then it was over. <laughs> Gigi like punched him in the head to indicate that he was done. <laughs> and all the while like he's singing some stupid song. <laughs> and the show gets more and more raucous. There's like mosh pits. At some point a woman goes to take a photograph and Gigi kicks her camera and breaks the camera, of course, because that's what Gigi's gonna do, and she starts yelling, I'm gonna sue you, I'm gonna sue you, and maybe she did, but what is she gonna get from Gigi? He's got no money. So the show's getting more and more raucous. There's urine, there's blood. And when he starts defecating on the stage, that's when everybody backs away. 
because at this point they're like, oh, shit's literally getting real at this point. So people start backing away, but Gigi's like totally into it. So at one point he jumps up and he jumps into the audience, but everyone is in the process of moving away. So he jumps into the audience and he lands on his back on the floor in a pile of his own urine. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, I sold my car for this? And that's my Gigi story. Oh my God! I think I might have seen a video of that. I've been actually one of um <clears throat> one of the people that I interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we we also spoke about Gigi Allen. Gigi Allen was a big influence in his life. So I was watching some of the videos and I was like, oh my God. Anyway, Marie, thank you so much oh, thank you for, for being on Fish Out of Agua. So where if people want to uh, keep up with your fabulousness and 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 your chronicling of of like our our well-spent youth where can they find you instagram twitter facebook I am nowhere right now you can find me on instagram occasionally at mungo181 mungo181 mungo m-u-n-g-o 181 mungo is uh mungo and 181 is a street i used to live on and uh you can find me there or um you can look for kitty kind kitty kind that's right because we're, we're cat humans yeah i do instagram uh for kitty kind you can tell my instagramming by the um, bad spellings of things because I'm usually typing while I'm walking and it's like, oh, whatever that word is. Yeah, still <laughs> doing the DIY. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Live and die by the DIY. Exactly. And Marie, in closing, if um, you had one little, not, I don't even want to say piece of advice, if you had one thing that you would tell that child in living in the little bedroom in Staten Island or any little small town where he, they feel like they need to get out to be who they are and what people are telling them they, they, they can't be for whatever reason, what would you tell them? Get the fuck out. You can do it. You can do it. Make it happen. You can do it. Make it happen. All right, Fish Out of Agua and Marie signing out. Bye.
That was Townie, preceded by some hissing cats. Townie is by another fellow Brooklynite, Mitski Miyawaki, from her 2014 Bury Me at Makeout Creek album. And guess what, kids? That's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we have an announcement. Um, Usually we talk about Patreon and sponsoring shows, which of course you can do. Just go to the RadioFreeBrooklyn.com homepage, click on the Donate tab, and follow the instructions. And we would be so grateful if you would sponsor not just our show, but any of the fine shows here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn is also partnering with the Footlight Bar in Ridgewick or Bushwood, depending on what you think of it. It's near the L train, uh, the decal stop on the L train. And we've been, Radio Free Brooklyn has been doing monthly shows. And guess what? Fish Out of Agua gets one. Um, there is going to be a Fish Out of Agua storytelling show featuring five people who have been guest artists on Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo during season two. David Hugh, Alana Lancaster, Gaston Amante, Susan Kent, and Sydney Washington telling stories. And there's going to be trivia, prizes, maybe some surprises. It's going to be a fun night. So why don't you guys come out? This is going to be, I'm going to be promoting this every week for, for the next month, so get used to it. Ha ha. It's going to be on Monday, November 20th at 7 p.m. at the Footlight Bar, 465 Seneca Avenue in lovely Ridgewick or Bushwood, New York, Queens, New York, or Brooklyn, New York, depending on what you think. Um, take the L train to DeKalb, and admission is only 5 bucks. Five bucks for all these stories and all this entertainment. It's well worth it. You're going to have a lot of fun. Believe me. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be great. Well, kids, we opened this week's show with a back-in-the-day song. And we're going to close with one. This This is Wire, Outdoor Miner from the 1978 album Chairs Missing. Happy Halloween. Stay tuned to for Brooklyn Bandstand next and we'll see you next week.
Jesus, which is not